I'm Alyssa Bresnak, and over the past year, I've spoken with founders and fans, investors and engineers, employees, celebrities, all to answer one question. What happened to HQ Trivia? An app that drew millions of live viewers and was supposed to be the future of TV, until it wasn't. From the Ringer Podcast Network, this is Boom Bust, the rise and fall of HQ Trivia. Now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. So we're in the controversial season now. Season two. So many people, Van, hated this season. Uh, When you first saw it, I mean, did you have those feelings initially and it's something that grew on you over time or did you like it right away? So when I first saw it, no. Yeah, same here. Uh, When I first saw it, I'm not even going to lie and pretend like I enjoyed season two when I first saw it. It's not like I didn't... Well, it's not like I didn't enjoy it. I never really gave season two a chance when it first started coming on. It looked so much different. It felt so much different that I wasn't really willing to give season two of The Wire a chance. That's really what happened. And then something else happened on subsequent rewatches because I had downloaded all the seasons of The Wire on this torrent on my old old faithful, uh, the silver lightning laptop uh, of the of the mid to late 2000s. At one point I had most of the seasons on there. And when I would do these rewatches, because I would travel by train from L.A. to Louisiana because I was scared to fly. And so when I would do these rewatches, I would always skip season two. And one day I just said, you know what I'm going to get into? It was a Thanksgiving. I used to have a, 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 a tradition where all Thanksgiving day long, I would watch The Wire. Um, and one Thanksgiving, uh, maybe like 10 years ago, I said, I'm just going to watch nothing but season two. We get into season two. And that's when I realized it's a pivotal season. It's an important season. And it's one of the better seasons of The Wire. It's just the the landscape is different and the characters look different. But season two is incredibly strong. Yeah. And I think and and I hope people who are rewatching with us um, kind of maybe have this epiphany as well is that season two, you feel bad for it. I think season two's positioning is really what screwed it, is that you're coming off the high of this first season. Then you have season three, which is like fucking phenomenal. And so this is sandwiched in between. And because the series takes a detour, like suddenly just as you had gotten used to, um, you know, the Barksdale organization, you're learning how the, the cops work and the inner workings of the police department, Baltimore's approach to policing, then all of a sudden, like, what's this water? Why are we in dock? Yeah. Why are we in a port? Right. Like, it's an right. entirely new cast of people that you suddenly have to learn. And thinking back on it now, that's a courageous decision to make. Right. A, a super sure. a super courageous decision to make, given where the story was going and how robust it was. But just to give people some backstory before we dive into um, season two. So David Simon, his... It was his goal. He did not want this series. He did not want The Wire to become just about drugs and cops. He did not want that at all. 
um, he wanted to tell not just the story of the drug trade, but he wanted to tell the story of a city. And the port became super important because that was the way that it took it out of inner, inner city Baltimore and it took it kind of off the streets to also tell um, something that's happened in a lot of urban cities, uh, especially uh, in areas like Baltimore, is which is deindustrialization. That happened. And that was a, a major because, you know, you have less workers who are in these blue collar jobs, who are in these manufacturing jobs, who are in jobs like what we see on the port. That also is a co-conspirator into the proliferation of drugs because they lost industry because of technology. And right. that's a gutsy way to tell a story. But it's also a very smart way because it's it's the truth. It's it, it right. happened, you know, Detroit, um, for example. I mean, granted, we're still making cars, but it's not the same as it was in the 50s and 60s in Detroit when uh, they thought Detroit was going to be like a New York that it was going to be like Los right. Angeles. Oh, at one you, point, yeah. At, at one point, it had become on that level of a city. It was totally. a, a shot. Yeah, it was a huge, huge sort of bastion of industry, and people were moving there. It was one of the fastest growing cities in not just America, but in the world. And I think something else that makes a lot of sense when you put it in context about season two is that when Nino Brown was sitting up there and he was talking about ain't no Uzis made in Harlem. Uh, we don't have no boats, no ships, and anything like that. In season two, we get to see the mechanism by which these things come in, and we get to see it from faces that aren't normally connected to the drug trade. And so when you see the, that desperation affects people and makes them take... Desperation doesn't just affect Black people in West Baltimore and make them do illegal things. Desperation and the loss of that industry that you're talking about affects people and will then corrupt them, or not even necessarily corrupt them, but make them take chances for money and for uh, upward mobility that they might have not done. So the corruption at the port by guys, characters that by and large we come to love, it, it connects itself to what was going on in West Baltimore. And as I got older, that oneness of people, that oneness of experience, that similarity in uh, desperation became more of an attractive theme to me. And that's probably why season two resonated more with me the older I got. So um, there's a few different reasons why this season happened. Uh, as I mentioned in the last podcast, when we did our season awards, uh, David Simon and, and Ed Burns and everybody else did not know the wire was going to be renewed until they were about halfway through season one. And there was some concerns about, the show, even though we, 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 I guess we've both kind of gone back and forth and maybe argued a bit with ourselves about whether or not this was actually a black show, despite the fact that it had a ton of black characters. Um, there was an authenticity to it that made it feel that way, certainly. But, um, you know, maybe not a black show in the ways we're used to thinking of black shows. Certainly, as you so intelligently pointed out, the fact that The Wire didn't win anything in any awards... <laughs> definitely makes it seem like it was indeed a black show. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Two Emmy nominations, both for writing and they didn't win shit. So that's the only thing the wire right. ever got. But there, there was some concerns brought up in the network circles about the show have being as black as it was. You had white characters, but to them, it felt like a black show. And, you know, when you read all the pieces matter by Jonathan Abrams, um, you know, there is 
they don't speak of that. That's more of like sort of a Hollywood rumor behind closed doors that that's why he took it in this direction. But I tend to not believe that as much. I mean, I think that was probably a concern and brought up because David Simon, the one thing that's very apparent about him, he's going to stick true to the story. Like he yeah. doesn't, he's not going to compromise on, I'll be to make these white people comfortable. Let me, let us create a storyline that involves a bunch of white people. And then that way I get to keep my show. He does not strike me at all as that type of person. He'd be the opposite. I think it was important to him based off his own words to show that the drug problem is not just a black problem with a black face, that this is a much wider and deeper problem that has to do with a lot of things. It's not one simple answer. It's a lot of complicated answers. And this was his way of getting to the heart of that complication. And look, just like you, when I first saw season two, it was such a letdown because I had gotten so attached to what I'd already known. And it took me a second rewatch to appreciate season two and realize, wow, I wouldn't, it's hard for me to put it in the top three of the wire seasons. I, I only put it forth, not out of disrespect, but just because I can't jump it over four and I can't jump it over three and I wouldn't jump it over one. It's way better to me than season five, personally. That's just yeah. the way I feel about it. But I think this season gets disrespected so much and it's in, in a way a compliment to David Simon because of what he built in the first season. Yeah, like, you know, the familiarity of the show you had spent some time with the show. You had spent some time with the characters. You had spent some time with the world. Um, and then to be thrust out of that world, it almost started like, it almost felt like you were starting over. That a lot of the work you had done in season one um, uh, was uh, was being undone. And, it, you know, as human beings, we wanted to come back and fall and get back in that, you know, comfortable couch that's on the pit, that's that was in the pit, and like settle back into it and pick up where we left off. But, you know, that's not the, how, how life is. Life oftentimes doesn't pick up where it left off. It changes. And I think one thing that's evident when you start watching the beginning of season two is it's a reflection of some of the chaos that has gone down uh, uh, in season one and of how people are changing up and moving. And then when we meet the new characters, um, we kind of get a sense of their world as introduced the same way that we got a sense of the Barksdale's world. So let's go ahead and do it. Let's yeah. get into it. I'm, yeah, because one I'm thing excited. I definitely realized in watching this um, this episode of, of this first episode of season two, which is called Ebb Tide, is there's so much about this episode that's exactly like the first episode of season one. They follow, there is a blueprint that they follow in this that is very, very similar. So um, mm -hmm. getting right to it in, in terms of a, a recap uh, you know, as we said, you are introduced now to an entirely new storyline and an entirely new family. And that would be the Sabaka family. Uh, Frank, mm. Ziggy, your boy. <laughs> See, I, I we got to come up with a title for it because Ziggy does as many fuckboy moments as Stringer has. Ziggy has. So disrespectful to Stringer. <laughs> so disrespectful to Stringer. Ziggy, Ziggy is a fuck up, like of well, epic I, television proportions. Are not the same thing, right? I get it, but Z I don't. I don't know if anyone in the history of TV, and I know I love to be hyperbolic, but anyone in the history of TV is as big a fuck up as Ziggy Sabaka. Okay, all right. So a whole new cast, the Sabaka family, uh, that's on the porch. You get introduced to them. New cast of supporting characters: uh, Beatty. The Greeks, Sergey, aka a. Boris, and a reintroduction to Stan Valchek, who is Presbelewski's father-in-law. So all those characters come at you in this very first episode. And just like episode one of season one, um, as I mentioned, a lot of parallels there. 
episode one, season one started with a murder. Episode one, season two starts with murders. Yeah. So McNulty, who is now assigned to uh, the Marine unit, discovers a dead woman floating in the water. Beatty, who is with the Port Authority police, discovers a full container of, or a container that is full of dead women. Um, and that's much of how uh, things are kind of unravel in season two. Uh, we also see what becomes of some of our favorite characters uh, from season one. You know, besides McNulty, you got uh, Daniel's now banished to the evidence room. Buck is still the Buck. Uh, Kiva's now desk duty in the forfeiture department. Herc's still cracking heads. Um, and we also see what becomes of some of the favorites in the Barksdale organization. Bodie has now risen up the ranks, uh, so much so that Stringer gives him a test. Um in the most fuckboy way possible, as only Stringer would do. Oh, and he passes that test uh, with flying colors. Avon's in jail, uh, but still checking in on the the operation. And Stringer is now running things out of the funeral home that they were scouting in season one. So that's why we pointed that out as a file that's away for later, because the funeral home now becomes home base for the Barksdale operation. And now, without further ado, let's get to the part you really want to get to. The The tear down of an enterprising young man named Ziggy Sabaka, who is the son of Frank Sabaka, who is the man on the port. Go ahead. Tear, tear down Ziggy as he tries to live and, and further and better himself, Van. Okay. I will. All right. So from the moment that we meet Ziggy Sabaka, we're introduced to two things. Number one, we're introduced to someone who is Bad at their job, right? He's lost one of the containers, right? Ziggy doesn't know where the container is. The container is the the size of two Ford excursions stacked up onto each other, three or four back, but he lost the damn thing. Can't even do that. And what we learn shortly after Ziggy loses it is that he is Frank Sabaka's son. And that is the reason why he is not going to get fired. There are very few times in a television show or in life where you see a character and realize that that is going to be the character that ruins everything. It is completely apparent from the moment that you, that, that you meet Ziggy Sabaka, who is so tragically inept, so unbelievably intellectually incompetent, so goddamn stupid that he is going to end up doing something that puts somebody somewhere in a tremendous amount of danger. Now, Almost, I'd say, uh, in wire lore, uh, that this is a heavy-handed sort of portrayal of a character. We haven't really seen as one-dimensional a character as Ziggy Sabaka is uh, in the wire prior to this. And I don't really know if we see one after this. But the reasons why the character had to be so one-dimensional um, become evident as the season moves on. Uh, another scene with Ziggy is a scene where he uh, takes out his penis um, in the bar. He's got a big old penis, takes the penis out in the bar. Everybody in the bar knows it's coming. They tell him not to do it. He does it anyway, but then they laugh. This shows you how the rest of the people at the port look at Ziggy. He's not looked at as a serious person. He's not looked at as somebody who, who they should respect or in any way even consider uh, what he's looked at as is basically the albatross that's around the neck of his father, who is a great man. Yeah, and, and not just his father. It, I would say his cousin, too. 
his cousin as well, yeah. Nikki Sabaka. Um, and so in that, Ziggy becomes harmless. At first, it seems as if all of this is harmless. And one of the themes of The Wire that starts here and moves on is what happens when harmlessness becomes harmful. We kind of see this in Ziggy. We're going to see this in a little bit more in the kids uh, when we get around to season four. But from the beginning of the introduction of the character all the way through this season, um, Ziggy's main sort of danger to everyone around him is that he doesn't take anything seriously. And he's in the middle of a bunch of serious shit that is going on. Uh, and so uh, as that goes on, my my patience for this guy just wore so thin rewatching this. You're probably this. mad and as fuck watching this. <laughs> I, I'm so like, because coming, coming on coming on the heels of season one when you're doing a rewatch and knowing that the stakes of everything and seeing someone who doesn't really respect those stakes, just an entitled little twerp just made me sick. Well-played character, but I hate me some Ziggy Zabaka. So to me, Ziggy's danger is not that he doesn't take things seriously, although that is dangerous. Uh, the fact that he does to some degree, um, to a large degree, treat life like a joke. His danger to his family, to the ports, period, and to himself and anyone around him is his insecurity, is his danger. And That's absolutely yeah, correct. Because here's the thing about Ziggy is he overcompensates because he is the son of Frank Sabaka. He's trying to carve his own lane. He's trying to be his own man. And I imagine this is the case a lot of the times with a lot of people who are the children of powerful people or people who are have some kind of recognition in their communities. It doesn't have to be an athlete or a politician or anything like that is you are caught up trying to prove that you're just as good as the parent that is in the power position. And part of the reason why Ziggy gets into so much trouble and does so much shit and wants to be the center of attention is because he's trying to be like his father, Frank, who everybody who, as you see already in episode one is like a conciliary of the port, right? right? He's running the port. People come to him when they need things. People come to him when they want to get shit done. His father is a very powerful man. And because he doesn't really have any power, he tries to do things so that people will pay attention to him. And he interprets, there's a lot of people who don't understand the difference between somebody laughing at you and somebody laughing with you. And he doesn't get that difference. And, and and to be honest with you, they play on that. They do. Throughout the entire season about whether or not we're laughing at or laughing with Ziggy. To your point, you know who he reminds me of a little bit? Fredo Corleone. Oh, he's so Fredo. Oh, yeah. He, he, he like, he, completely like, Fredo. He, uh, reminds me a little bit and Nick, of Nicky Fredo is, Corleone. And Nicky is Michael Corleone in, and, in and, many and, ways. And, and Nicky is kind of like Michael Corleone. They come from this family. They got the same name, uh, but they don't have kind of the same hustle. You know, with Ziggy... You know, when Fredo is telling Michael, one of the greatest scenes in movie history, when Fredo is telling Michael, listen, they played me, but I wasn't trying to hurt you. I was trying to get something from me. Like, I'm smart. I'm smart. I was, I'm, you're my kid brother. And I was passed over. You see that Fredo's insecurity can be weaponized by his enemies in order to hurt his family. Um, and, you know, Ziggy is a character that as the season kind of moves on, 
you're going to see that maybe not people using him intentionally um, as Fredo was sort of used, but in the same vein, that huge gaping hole inside of him uh, is just a ticking time bomb. Um, it seems harmless, but it's really harmful. Yeah. And this is how you, um, among the many ways you'll discover that Ziggy has no, he, he does care for his family, but it, it it's warped and twisted up inside his insecurity. But sometimes by the way people treat themselves or things that they do, you know whether or not they have any regard for others. And there was one thing that Ziggy did in this episode that let me know this dude is not only unhinged, he has no regard for human life in the way that he should. This motherfucker is dancing in the, their, their, their bar where all the port workers go. He's dancing in the bar with no shoes on. Dirty yeah. motherfucker has on no shoes in this bar. He has on some, some tube socks, which we later discover are dirty and filthy and have holes in them because this yeah. clown has been dancing in them in a dirty-ass bar. If somebody right. is grimy enough to dance in a grimy-ass bar with just some tube socks on, they can't possibly care about you, and they damn sure don't care about themselves. Yeah, Britney Spears. I get it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that, that is the ultimate tale. Now, I didn't like Ziggy, uh, his character. I probably did have a little bit more compassion. I haven't gone through that dynamic where I have a powerful mother or a powerful father, and I'm trying to live up to something. But I understood it. I understood where his insecurity was coming from and him constantly overcompensating and he does something that as you as we just talked about where even though he's he how he can go from harmless to harmful in just nanoseconds when they go and they meet the greek and one he's not even supposed to be there if nikki's car right. doesn't break down he's not even there he takes him uh he gives him a ride to go meet the greek and rather than being you know, rather than doing what most people might do in that situation was they may just observe, they don't know the environment, they just try to play it cool. Ziggy immediately inserts his buffoonery into what is a very delicate relationship, okay? Mm. At this point, we don't know what the relationship exactly is with the Greek, but we know it's a serious and likely criminal one. And him immediately saying, oh, you must be the Greek, and trying to crack jokes and trying to get in and just doing too much his cousin has to tell him to chill out and shut the fuck up because yeah. just based off his exuberance and trying to um, appear like he's the man and be the man and overcompensate is about to get all of them clearly fucked up in this situation. And this yeah. is a theme for Ziggy throughout the rest of the season where he is so determined to carve his own lane, to be the man, to live up and if not go further than his father went in terms of stature, that he often, often makes clumsy, stupid, ridiculous mistakes that essentially brings everybody down. Yeah, I mean, he lacks the one thing that any criminal really needs, which is discipline. You need, like, like especially if not just if you're a criminal by yourself, but if you're part of a criminal organization or if you're a part of or if you're going to be uh, in the middle of something or trying to do something or or whatever, you're going to need discipline. You're going to need to know when it's time to to shut up, when it's time to listen, when it's time to talk, when it's time to be fierce, when it's time to show flex. You're going to need to know all of those things. And uh, uh, what bothers me about a character like that is not so much 
that things end up going bad for him is that he sucks like a vortex, like a black hole, everyone around him into his problems. And that is what makes him a very key character in this entire season. Um, But one of the more flawed and, to be honest with you, one of the more one-note characters in the history of The Wire. Very few characters uh, in in the history of The Wire are one-note, but Ziggy is definitely that. Well, I will will say this. I'll drop this tease before we move on to another uh, category. There is one person in season two that... I probably, I mean, I I dislike Ziggy, but again, I, as I said, I understand him. I know who you're talking about. You already know who I'm talking about. There's one character who's very much like Ziggy. Who's a one note as well. One note as well. Who yeah. also is one of the worst people in The Wire in the history right. of the show. The worst. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. But got that same thing. Is that coming from a bloodline, trying to be the man, insecure as hell, often fucks up. It's like. I, I so I have honestly I probably have more vitriol for them than I do. Uh, for this uh, we're not even gonna we're not gonna ruin it for you, but we're gonna in- get introduced in a couple of episodes. Yeah, we're almost to there. the black, the black Ziggy. The black yes, it's the black version of Ziggy. Absolutely, yep. but your Fredo assessment so very very accurate. I and in this episode, even though I mean it's a little much like again just comparing this to season one. This is a ground work episode where they're just laying the yeah. groundwork, laying the foundation, giving you the cement, okay? Just, that's mm-hmm. pouring the concrete, rather, um, to set things up for season two. So what were some of your favorite moments or uh, favorite scenes from episode one of season two? Well, I like Bodie's training day. <laughs> we learn a lot more about Bodie's character in this. Number one, it's more than a scene. It's more, it's more a sequence. But when they're leaving, and we, we, you realize that Bodie's never been outside of Baltimore before. He doesn't really even know how radio stations work. I know that was pretty mind blowing. Like they're they're driving, and um, and you know, Bodie is in there, and he doesn't realize that if you drive far away enough uh, from Baltimore, that the radio station dies out. Hey, yeah, this radio ain't working that way. You losing it, huh? You losing the station, man. What you mean? We done gone so far from Baltimore, man. We losing the station. Go try Philly station or some shit like that, yo. But the radio in Philly is different. Nigga, please, you gotta be fucking with me, right? You ain't never heard a radio station outside of Baltimore? No, man, I ain't never left Baltimore except that Boys Village shit one day, and I wasn't trying to hear no radio up in that bitch. Bodie thinks that you can get Baltimore radio stations in Shanghai. Bodie thinks that you can get Baltimore radio stations in Sydney. He thinks you can get them in uh, the Maldives. He thinks you can get them in St. Bart's in Anguilla. No, Bodie, you can't. Maybe if you have some kind of app on your computer or on your phone, you might be able to. But no, you can't, Bodie, especially not then. Well, but don't you uh, think I, that was... And he doesn't have a lot of these. And frankly, the only one I can think of that he had in season one is when he hesitated at kill, killing Wallace. It, it was... Uh, it was one of the most, if not human. the most human, not just human, innocent moments he's had. Yeah. Childlike moments that he's had. Yeah. Where right. his world is so condensed that he has no idea of anything outside of Baltimore or how anything outside of Baltimore actually works. It almost makes you want to absolve him for some of the things that he's done. Because well, his I'm baby don't know nothing. Far, but... <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. No, I'm just saying. Um, so uh, that's one scene that I love. And another scene I love involves a character we just talked about. I love the scene where uh, where where Ziggy uh, uh, messes things up with the Greeks when he won't shut 
up. I think very few scenes in Wire history um, are going to be more indicative and telling of a character and the 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 danger that they can inflict on the people on themselves and the people around them than that character than that scene right there. You have the Greeks, people who are some of the most serious gangsters that we're go- we're gonna see in the Wire. Actually, the Greeks might be the most gangster people. The Greek and the everything, they might be the most gangster no, of anyone in the entire world. I don't think question that it's them. I think if we were doing a gangster list, the the the, the whole Greek ranking? organization, a power ranking, a, a, a gangster power ranking, I think they would be at the top. It's hard to argue against it. And I know some people will look at gangster as many bodies and that kind of thing. But when you look at actual power, yeah. they have all of it. It's sure. It's, it's the Greeks, for sure. Without a doubt. Yeah. Um, and so just seeing him with them is like seeing a guppy around some sharks. I just love the way that scene plays out. <laughs> I know in that moment you wish they would have ate him, but... I, Eat him up. I know, unfortunately, he has a little bit more time left uh, on this series. Uh, for me, one of the, my favorite scenes is when Herc ran into Kima at the forfeiture office. Uh, mm, great scene. Yeah, that was a great scene. Um, Herc still can't do paperwork. <laughs> still doesn't like it, which Kima, you know, kind of reminds him. And Kima also still can't type. But when Herc, and this is, he is not a character who is observant, nor is he intuitive about anything. But what he said to her was probably the most on point, astute observation he's made about anybody in the whole show. And he could tell immediately that Kima is unhappy. She's unhappy. She is completely unhappy. She's now on desk duty. And even though she's been shot and she's, you know, fully recovered, you can see and sense that longing, or at least he senses that longing in her and um, uh, and understands what that must feel like. And so when he told her, if you were a guy, your friends would take you out, buy you a beer and let you know you're whipped, pussy whipped within an inch of your life. And right. uh, it was super accurate because mm-hmm. this is not as much as you know Kiva and then she even says like I made a promise and you know she means Cheryl that yeah. of course I mean her significant other before she got shot was tripping about her being a police officer and she didn't like it and we see even in this episode when Kima finally comes home and she's sort of in a grumpy mood because she's been sitting at a desk all damn day and you know she alludes to the fact that she has clearly promised Cheryl that she would not go back out on the street and it's right. killing Kima's spirit. And for Herc, of all people, one of the most oblivious fuckers in this entire um, in this entire uh, series, for him to know that in that moment, I thought that was um, a really, really uh, good scene. Um, on top of that, you know, in that same scene, we, now I, there's a part of me that wanted to put us in the, in the bucket of this being unintentionally racist. When he proposes basically affirmative action for white drug dealers. Oh, I love that. All right. And he says, if white boys want to sell drugs, they have to make laws for it. Uh, like, like even it out. Leave no white man behind is what he said. And, he, right. and he's talking about how he has so much more respect for black drug dealers because they at least care about the craft. They're like, right. they're trying to, you know, because Herc likes to buck, bust heads, but Herc also likes to chase. A little mm-hmm. bit. He doesn't, he doesn't like the police work part of it, like the minutia, like the shit that Lester and Prez and McNulty get into in terms of figuring shit out. Like he don't like puzzles, but he likes the right. fact that he at least has to work for it a little bit to try to to bust some guys and that there's these there's this kind of cat and mouse thing that's going on. And he's pissed because the 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 white people just don't to him have the same respect for the game. What never occurs to Herc is why that is. 
And white privilege <laughs> never comes up in his feeble, simple-minded brain of his. It's like mm-hmm. maybe the reason the white people don't fear actually being caught is because why would they fear being caught? Most of, mm-hmm. you know, for a large percentage of this country, they look at drugs as purely, and, and it's lessening some because you have the opioid crisis and 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 we know that drugs is is pervasive in in the urban city, just like in in urban America, just like it is in rural America, and and in communities in between. But it never occurs to him that that might be the reason why you have such a casual freeness about selling drugs if you're white, because you ain't got to worry about the man the same way that we got to worry about the man. Well, I mean, true, that is true. But also remember now, he is dealing with a less sophisticated criminal. He's dealing with people who aren't really like, you know, you see people who might have had port jobs and are using uh, and are dealing drugs to kind of string money together. Right. But they don't really have to be sophisticated because they're not used to being under heavy police presence or surveillance or scrutiny. Exactly. Right. And so and so he doesn't get that all of the things that Avon and Stringer and the, the West Baltimore cast that he's been chasing that they've developed, they've developed them out of necessity they've developed them because of the policing because of the presence of the police because of the fact that the police are down there primarily in those neighborhoods to get criminals all the time so because of that they've had to be one step uh, uh smarter than law enforcement and so when he sees a less sophisticated brand of criminal he's like offended I, by it <laughs> Yeah, he's like, he's like, you know, make me work for it, girl. Like, you know what I mean? So, like, it's it's the whole thing. Uh, I, I thought that that was funny because it lets you know that there is, and we see this all the time, but there is a s- small degree, a level of respect between cops and criminals. And that level of respect has to do with the fact that oftentimes these people aren't too far off from a personality standpoint, it's just that their motivations are uh, different. And so when Herc is seeing that, he's looking at it and he's saying, you know, uh, I, I, I once chased a, a, a fine wine caliber of criminal. <laughs> I'm not down here for this Paps Blue Ribbon bullshit. He's like, like, I'm used to the back. 1942 I'm used criminals. to the Macallan 21 of drug dealers <laughs> and y'all got me down here on this on this PBR, man. So uh, it's like, how dare you yeah, give me this Hornitos? Uh, yeah, criminal. I love that scene. <laughs> love that scene. Yeah, though. no, that's that's extremely uh, telling. I thought in this particular episode, and and maybe this is just the nature of when you're talking about episode one of the beginning of a new season. But there's a shitload of file this away for later moment the whole episode the whole is episode one big is this away. away. yes exactly yeah so uh run down some of those that you that you noticed ziggy being a ro- moron that away. <laughs> ziggy being a, uh, that can cover every episode <laughs> yeah just for no file that away do ziggy not forget ziggy's a moron file that away okay uh obviously the the dead girl um that the the first the first appearance of the dead girl that's floating in the water um, that's a file this away for later moment that actually becomes part of another file this away for later moment later on in this exact same episode. Obviously, when the when they find the girls uh, it, like in the carton that have passed away, that is a, ma- a major gigantic file this away for later moment. Um, to to uh, a bunk coming to call on uh, McNulty to look for Omar, 
And I just love the way McNulty is being so so. Uh, Bunk now needs Omar for the for to for for testimony uh, in the case of Gant in the Gant killing uh, against Bird. Um, he needs to 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 raise Omar, and he can't get in touch with him. But he knows that Jimmy can. Jimmy is so disillusioned by everything that's gone on in Homicide that he's actually being cold to the Bunk. You got a line on Omar, Jimmy? Well, he's not the starboard. That's port, fool. How the fuck would you know? Come on. Let me buy you lunch. We can think on this shit together. I leave, I gotta tell my sergeant. I think uh, for this season in particular, the biggest file this away for later moment is, is Valchek offering the priest a couple grand because he's for trying the for the window, for the glass stained yeah. window. He's trying to get that hideous you know, uh, salute to po- uh, to Polish police officers getting it prominently placed in the church only to find out that Frank Sabaka has already claimed that position. And he, the first question he asks, which is probably the smartest che- question that Valchek ever asked because he's incurious. He's just a career ass kisser. And that's why he's in the role that he's in. And when he asks, I don't understand where they getting the money from. That is a follow this away for later moment. And just that the him being annoyed that somebody like Frank Sabaka has beat him out as a, you know, a police officer and, and being the law beat him out for this particular position in the church is huge. And a really, right. by the way, big part that's of the exciting. Season. That's the exciting moment for this entire season. Really, It's, it's like, that's what sets it, off uh, the, everything that happens in season two and that I would, plus the carton. That does. And I would say even yeah. maybe, I mean, the girls are a big part of it. The dare girls are a big part of it. But I think Valchek's annoyance with Frank Sabaka is what sets everything in motion, girls or not. How much do them dock boys offer for this spot? I can match you. Offerings are confidential, Stan. And as you can see, you already I can go as high as 4000 Just tell me if they went higher than four. More than four. Who came to you with the offer? Francis Sabotka. Frank Sabotka has that kind of money. It was from his local. The checkers? They don't have a hundred guys left paying dues. It's a parish you give us, sir. Maybe you talk to Frank. Oh, yeah. We'll talk. You know, and I would also add, uh, when Press Belusky is in Valchek's office, and, you know, Valchek, as I mentioned, that's his father-in-law, and he's telling him, how useful and how much he loves being a police officer now. And Valchek is like, no, no, no. What you need is nice desk job over here in this district. Don't even, you know, fuck solving cases, fuck trying to be real police. And, and which is not surprising advice given the fact he's married his daughter. So he's, yeah, he doesn't want him out. He doesn't want him out. And Prez wants to go to uh, narcotics. Their difference of opinion is definitely a file this away uh, for later moment. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. And the fact that that and, and the fact that there ha- there seems to be right there, um, based upon Valchek's view of uh, Prez uh, uh career, natural tension between the two men. Yes, natural tension between the two men. Not just because of the difference in sort of uh, the outlook. Um, of what Press should do with his career, but just between them, something's not jiving. Huge moment. Um, another file this away for later moment is you notice when Kima goes home 
and there's a parenting book on the table mm-hmm. with Cheryl, and they talk yep. about how she's trying to get pregnant. Huge fathers away for a later moment for some things that unravel later in season two. I'd also point to a little bit smaller, but Nikki's living situation. He's living there with his mm-hmm. mother, with his parents. Uh, he's driving a rusted out Monte Carlo. That's generally a piece of trash. His situation is a really big file this away for later later moment because of what that situation causes him to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and the fact that um, it it, it you can see the way it's weighing on him. His mother stomping on the floor to wake him up. You know, him being sort of uh, him telling Frank earlier. That, you know, he wasn't getting as many days and the, this is the relationship and all of that stuff. Absolutely. This is the file. This is the later laid, episode. They laid a lot of groundwork in this one. And that's why I said when I went back and thought about it, I was like, wow, this very much is is very parallel to to season um, one, episode one, where they're not only giving you foundation, they're giving you a bunch of storylines and a bunch of new characters that you have to kind of remember. And most Mm -hmm. importantly, at some point, or as the thread of the season plays out, you'll see how this is all uh, interconnected. Um, Oh, that another big kind of father's away moment is Stringer running into trouble with the connect in New York. Yep. Yeah. Huge. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, uh, Roberto and it's not only it's suggested, strongly suggested, like flat out accusing Avon of being a snitch. And that's the reason why suddenly their connect in New York uh, has trouble with the DEA. They're blaming the Barksdales for this. They're going to return their drug money that they used to um, to 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 fund their operation with. Um, and that plug drying up is a huge file that's away for later moment because it leads to some other things unraveling. Or not necessarily unraveling, but it leads to a partnership that mm-hmm. a huge one, a huge yeah. partnership that's coming because of that situation. So again, I mean, I think this is the beauty of the wire. It's about, especially in these these first episodes of these new seasons, because they're about different topics. Is just take note of the amount of storylines they're giving you and where they're going, and how they're um, you know connecting with it. Now, I feel like. With terms of Stringer, we have a difference of opinion, right? Of course, he had a fuckboy moment in this because it's Stringer. So that's like saying Stringer took a, took a sip of air today. Yes, he, he did. Right. Yes. So you were alluding to the test that he gave Bodie. Yes. That was some fuckboy shit. Why? <laughs> okay. So we're dealing with the mastermind here. I mean, he, you, you basically made him seem like he's Professor X. Of this fucking operation, all right? And I'm like, once again, his his plans are always so interesting to me. So at this point, Bodie has done a murder for him, right? He killed one, okay. right? Uh-huh. I would say, I don't know, he's proven a few things by being able to do that, right? Yeah. So now he's trying to test whether or not he can make this drug run. You know, Bodie's been elevated to transport, I guess, right? Or at least this particular duty. So he goes to this elaborate ruse of hiring two other people to follow Bodie to uh, a, a which is supposed to be transporting drugs, which aren't there only for Stringer's uh, Stringer just to see how he reacts under panic. Right. His kid's probably, you know, halfway he, Bodie, who does not get nervous over shit because he's a career criminal and he has basically fashioned himself to be the hardest man in Baltimore practically shitting himself about having to answer Stringer about what happened with these drugs. 
And Stringer, while sipping tea, like the snide, snotty motherfucker that he is, is like finally lets him in on the fact like this was all a test. Like, genius. We in a too serious of the game for your ass to be out here playing. Be out here bullshitting, mm. drinking your tea on top of that. I mean, that's just insulting, man. That's just fucking insulting. For a couple of things. Number one, he was drinking tea and he had that cold ass tan color fit on. I, like, cause I'm not gonna I lie, bet you man. he got Shout that tea at the farmer's market, too. He was uh, probably so, because he's, he's, he's caring about antioxidants <laughs> and making sure his immune... probably had elderberry syrup in that tea. Probably did. Knowing what no, we was going to be going through today. And you know he's a stevia, dude. You know he's like a, a stevia. Uh, probably stevia. so. Like, that's yeah. him. Like, he ain't yeah. a raw sugar, one of them type, agave. That's that's probably Stringer. You hate him so much that you're even not you're not even thinking straight. Number one, Bodie is moving up to a different level he was a street dealer he is now moving up to a lieutenant in the barksdale organization he is going to have more responsibilities than he did when he was down in the pit he's in the tower now he's gonna have to coordinate more things he might have to go out of town once or twice a month to make sure that things the supply chain is coming in he might have to make some runs that's what Bodie might have to do so what you want to do is you want to put Bodie to the test and make sure he can make one of these runs and see how he carries it when something goes wrong. To me, that is Stringer being thorough and making sure so that annoying. Bodie isn't going to fucking crack up if he goes out of town and the dope isn't there. Bodie didn't skate. He didn't leave. He came back like he will always does, like a good soldier and heard it directly from Stringer, he's testing him. Like, he's testing him. Would you jump out of a plane with a parachute that hadn't been tested, like, that hadn't opened before? No, you wouldn't. You want to know that the, this that this that these guys has a couple of jumps on him, that the parachute is open before. If, if like, if, 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 you, if you're going to jump out of a plane and somebody said, yo, we just made these parachutes a, a second ago, and, and we don't know, about them, but you're gonna be the first one to test them. You'd be like, hell no, I'm not. I'm not jumping out of the. Uh, oh, I got a question for you. Van Lathan sidebar question for Jamel Hill. Okay. Van Lathan sidebar question. It's about the wire, but then it's not. COVID nineteen v- vaccine comes out. They've done it. Would you be the first person to try it? I might wait a few. <laughs> I might wait a few just to see how everybody else reacts to it. I might wait. For, it's kind of like when we're finally able to play outside, right? We're right. finally able to play outside. I'm gonna let the first wave go, just to see how things are operating. Right. Then I'll, yeah. Then I'll jump in. Yeah. When that new movie comes out, when that James Bond comes out, it's like, oh man, first weekend we're going to see it. I'm like, shit, I'll be there the fifth. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm saying. <laughs> All right. During the uh, week. But no, but during the week, <laughs> yeah. Tuesday night yep. mat- matinee, um, Tuesday matinee. But what I'm saying, so I, I don't think that's football at all. I think that's being thorough, man. You like, you just don't like Stringer. I, I don't, and I'm biased, and I don't mind admitting that. But he, I, I guess this is the way I look at it, is I have just seen, if I'm Bodie, I'm thinking this. I have just seen this whole organization completely disrupted. Completely, you know, it's a shell of itself from what it used to be from, from when he was in the pit. And the dude in charge is going to try to tell it's, me about thoroughness. Uh, it seemed like you should have been thorough before now, huh? <laughs> yeah, it kind of seems that way. <laughs> yeah, like, you. now you 
want to have some checks and balances. Oh, okay. Seems like you're a little check and balance too late. <laughs> as yeah, far as I'm concerned. Maybe. Right? Maybe. And then on top of that, maybe. sometimes people just play too much. You know, I was watching uh um Love and Hip Hop Atlanta recently. Don't shame me. I don't give a shit. Yes, I watched Love and Hip Hop Atlanta. Wow. Yes, I was. And I'm wow. about to bring this full circle. Okay. Right? And so one of the women on there, I think Bam, that's her name. I apologize. I'm new to this. My husband got me. I blame him. He got me roped into the Love and Hip Hop franchise. So I'm still learning. Bam is pregnant. And all the ladies, Mimi, Bam, all of them from Atlanta, they all go on a weekend getaway. And they decide because there is some concern that, you know, Bam is concerned she might be pregnant. And they decide as a group to take a pregnancy test. Like they all take them in solidarity. Bam switches the pregnancy test with somebody who was adamant, like, I don't even know why I'm doing this. I, I Love her. I, <laughs> I ain't pregnant. And she, as a joke, switches the pregnancy test. This girl bust out crying when she got that pregnancy test. And it was positive. It was really Bam's test. But she didn't know that. I love it. She bust out it. crying. Now, it was a funny joke. But if I'm the girl who got the positive pregnancy test, and especially given the situation she was in, Bam might be pregnant, but we're going to have to have some words. Because sometimes in some Bruh. situations, you just can't play like that. Can't play. I get it. I love the joke, though. <laughs> I like, like, that's enough to make I mean, me go it watch is, the show. It is Shout good. I, could, I, I, could, I, I gotta be honest. I couldn't deny that it was not a well-timed, well-executed, well-played joke. And I was like, ooh, right. I should have done that on my bachelorette party. That would have been great to do to everybody. <laughs> right? Yeah, leave, leave Stringer alone. Yes, but still, Stringer play too much. That's the whole point. Right. Uh, anything right. in this episode that aged the best to you? When Bodie was riding and 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 uh, going to meet Stringer after the thing, like the fear in his voice. I'll tell you what I mean. When 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 the when the two guys are talking and he says, "No, he said we'll see when you get here." Bodie goes, "How we see?" <laughs> I can't tell you how many times. How, like like my, like it. Not only did that age the best, that ages from the past to the future. Like what did his voice sound like? What like like, like, bro, she sound like she mad, bro. Fuck. Like, tell me, bro, she yeah. sound like she mad. Like, I just love that. That is a universal thing. How did he say it though? Did he sound pissed off? Bodie was so goddamn scared. I feel like that fear and that kind of angst after you know that you fucked up. That has aged the best. By the way, that's gonna age the best forever. That's always gonna be like that. Uh, when you know that you're in it deep, how, how you're trying to piece together. Trauma detective trying to piece together every little piece of it to see how badly you absolutely fuck things well, up. That's kind of like the, I feel like the cousin of how he say it though is who all gonna be there. Who all gonna who be there? all gonna be there. That's like the cousin of that, right? Yep. Um, mm -hmm. No, that, that definitely aged incredibly well. And look, it's part of the bonding that goes on between Stringer and, and Bodie. Because they're mm -hmm. they're be they're becoming fast friends for sure. Yeah, and there's a, it and you know not only does uh, Bodie as, as you pointed out when we were discussing him in season one, not only does Bodie believe so wholeheartedly in this game and in this system, the amount of trust, faith, and adulation that he has for Stringer is really looks interesting. Up to him. Like he looks really up to him. he really looks up to Stringer. He wants mm -hmm. to kind of be like Stringer, and you could kind of see um, a lot of that, like when he's now, now that he's in the high rises or whatever, he's giving them the kind of speeches that D'Angelo was trying to give them or therefore yeah. D'Angelo was receiving 
as well mm-hmm. from like WeBay and those up in the higher up in the organization. Like he's trying to, he's making this transi- transition into trying to be in a little bit like a little junior boss. Like he's trying to like right. kind of, you know, move up the corporate ladder. Be a, he has ambitions to rise in this organization. And he's like, oh no, Stringer figured it out. Like he has a lot of faith and trust yep. in Stringer. So sad for that young man that he does. Um, what age the best for me is when Landsman says to McNulty, because remember, uh, look, we Landsman made a, gr- a a great po- proclamation. Although he did, he did he do cooked it. He cooked it. He cooked the books. Yeah, he did. He he definitely point shaved. He did. McNul- he did McNulty dirty. Right. He made yeah. a bet with him in season one that he was gonna wind up on the boat where he didn't want to be, and then he did. Uh, McNulty in by telling Rawls where he want to be because that's something white Stephen would do. All right, he, right. he would totally exactly. he would totally do that just so he could get ten dollars. He would like ruin this man's like career damn near over ten damn dollars. That's some hence why you call Landsman the worst boss. But he does say something to Jimmy that is true for the rest of this series and kind of sums him up in a nutshell. It's all about self-preservation, Jimmy. Something you've never learned. Never learned. You've never learned. And that is timeless when it comes to Jimmy McNulty. Uh, I didn't see anything that aged the best for or aged the worst for me. Did you spot anything? Yeah. Oh, what you got? Because I know you always say that that's always your hardest category is what aged the worst. Yeah. This jumped out at me. Um, When they were on the boat, there was a party. Those didn't age too well. <laughs> boat parties. <laughs> the boat, boat parties. <laughs> As we stand right now. They've seen better days. The, they, seen. Yeah, like those, obviously, they, they, there was a gathering that looked to be like there were more than 50 people. Uh, I got to be honest with you, from where I'm sitting right now, those did not age very Social well. Social gatherings. Social gatherings. D- well, not didn't age, age well. well. All right. They've they've had a rough couple of months here. So. <laughs> uh, uh for those scoring at home, we got one buck cigar in this and also a Bodie spit. He's back. He's really a boss He's now. He's back. He's spitting aggressively like a boss, like a, a wanna like somebody who wants to climb the uh drug dealing ladder. Um I did have two we love this show butts that jumped out to me. Um one of which is a little bit provocative. And uh, Van, I'm asking you to speak for the male species right now. Speak for the okay. speak for men. All right. No problem with that. This is what I, I I actually have wondered this since the first season, but in in this one, it was a higher amount of these kind of jokes than it normally is. Do dudes really talk about their dick that much? Because you yeah. you have Sabaka talking about the blue steel. You got like it's just at a, a certain age. Like, at, like what so, is that so, about? Sabaka's, Sabaka's age. Uh, Sabaka's age, maybe not, but you know, it's different. But like when we were in college, it was a lot of dick talk. <laughs> it was so like, you know I mean, I'm not even gonna lie. Cause like, I remember, I'm not gonna out this brother and tell him, but like at, 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 in college, uh, <laughs> in college, everyone wanted to, it was a lot about bravado. And so we talked back and forth, like, you know, this, she said that this was like this, and she said that, blah, 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 like that. So I remember there was a whole weird phase. I'd say maybe circa 2000, 2001, where within my crew, there was just an inordinate amount of talk about penises and when you shave your penis. And really? Like, like, yeah, I remember I was talking to one of my homeboys, 
And I and I just asked him. I was like, "Yo, you you shave the?" He's like, "Yeah, man. I need you to see the length." Is what he said. <laughs> That's what he said. And so I was like, oh, uh, all right. Um, but but yeah, so that's a thing. But I know you're talking about Sabaka and the diamond blue steel yeah, and all yeah, that yeah. stuff like that, the three inches diamond blue steel. Like at that age, I never heard my daddy in them. Okay. Uh, so you feel like I'm this is a younger now. man kind of thing, but he just... Yeah, you talked about it. You talked about it. But like, I, I, like with me and... Well, me and my homies sit around now and we talk like there's not a lot of it's not a lot of dick talk going on. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I gotta say, I, I don't know if us women engage in that <laughs> not in that particular way. You know I see it. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah, we we may talk about like, hey, you know, this issue is cropped up. Y'all ever experienced this or whatever, but like it's Yeah, I was about to say, y'all it's a lot more complicated it is, down it there. It is. We will yeah. we will definitely discuss its complications for sure. All right. Um and make sure you keep those conversations between you guys. Yeah. Because it, it gets <laughs> Not to be to involve a lot. You, no. We don't wanna we don't wanna know how the sausage is made. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it gets to be a lot. Pun intended, well timed. <laughs> uh the other thing yeah. I, I was wondering, um, you know, I don't know if it's quite a we love the show, but but all right. So we we saw Ziggy with the totally bombed out and depleted tube socks. But I noticed that Nikki also had. Do men sleep with their tube socks? Is that like a thing? I used to really, but then I stopped. I used to. I used to sleep with my socks on, but then I stopped. I stopped like years ago when I became, you know, more of a man. Because like, what happens is is I know we you guys were getting off the topic a little bit, but it's okay. Sorry, right, I, I think like, we're educating the masses right now. I used to have like long toenails because I, I I you know you didn't clip them. It, it, well, for, in order for me to in order for me to clip something, somebody has to tell me that that's a thing that people do. So wait a minute. Like my like my mom saw me one time and was like, you know, you should clip your toenails. And I was like, oh. And I was around you didn't. I think 34 or 35 at this time. I know you're supposed to clip them. Like I, I sometimes they fall off when you're playing basketball or whatever like that. And that's kind of the way it goes. Wow. And but so what was happening is the reason why I initially stopped wearing socks is because the toenails were so long that they were cutting through the socks and making holes in them. So I stopped wearing socks when I went to sleep. That was so worth me asking that question just <laughs> to know that Van is part Raptor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At one point, he was yeah. part Raptor. I was. He did not know he was supposed to clip his toenails. I tell you, man, mm. y'all got it so, so easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. We'll move on to a little trivia. Now, Ooh. I think this one, I think this is a pretty good one because I would never have guessed this at all. Did you know, Van, season yes. two of The Wire was its highest rated season? Yep. You're fucking shitting me. Not at all. Season two was the highest rated season of The Wire. So for all you people out there who have poured such vitriol into The Wire, it was actually season two that was number one in the ratings. Wow. In their ratings of the show, I should say. Not number one total. It was still way behind Sex and the City, Sopranos, all those. Now, quick breakdown. That could be for a couple of reasons. Number one, that could be coming off of a sensational first season um, that people tuned in. And then maybe season two initially wasn't enough to bridge people to coming back for season three. And, or it could just be. (laughs) You want to say it. Could it be a little more 
diversity in season two? Is that what it was? Is that what it drew just, in more? It could be that HBO's audience that it was a lot easier to go from The Sopranos to The Wire season two be. than it was for The Sopranos to The Wire season one. A little vanilla village love there. A little love from the village. Wow, that's a really shocking fact. Yes. I wouldn't have thought that at all. Uh, wow. Another two other smaller bits of, of trivia for people. Frank Sabaka also uh he also auditioned to play McNulty. Wow. Okay, cool. Yeah, I could have seen him as McNulty. I mean, I, I don't know if he'd have been as good, but like from a from a general kind of attitude, mentality, I could see him pulling, you know, pulling that off. So for yeah, sure. He was a he was an Oz veteran too. I think he was I, I remember him from Oz as yeah, well. Yeah, Chris Bauer is his name. Yeah. And also Amy Ryan, who plays BD. And I have to say, it is actually weird for me to see her in this role because I'm a big fan of The Office. And uh-huh. so she was on The Office for a few seasons, real integral part there. And so I just think of her as Holly. Holly from The Office, like every time I see uh-huh. her. But Amy Ryan, again, plays Beatty, went to high school with Seth Gilliam, who plays Carver. Wow! That's interesting. Yes. What's some great trivia today, man? And your boy Ziggy, give you a bonus one. Mm -hmm. Your boy Ziggy, his boy on the show that he knew beforehand, and I'm wondering if he was responsible for him uh, getting this this audition or getting linked up with the show, and it makes so much sense. His boy is Johnny. They knew each other from New York. Ziggy and Johnny. Wow. And Johnny, Johnny, who also uh, was in Kids, or maybe Johnny was in Bully. Yeah, he was in Kids. Leo Fitzpatrick, yes. Leo Fitzpatrick. Johnny, who who was in Kids. uh, Kids, one of the more shocking movies. Shocking. Uh, You want to talk about something that depressed the shit out of me? It was that movie. I was like, oh, my God. Hey, Hey, it's me, Casper. It's me, Casper. I'm like, Casper, don't. Casper, what are you doing? And then Casper got what he deserved from the, the, trying to be with a drunk chick and chick that's high. She, Casper didn't even know that Oof. kids. That movie kids was tough, a lot. Uh, tough watch. It was. A, it is a tough watch, but brilliantly done. All right. Finally, who won the episode, man? Easy work. McNulty won. Eh, that is easy. You yeah. know, I, I tried yeah. to convince myself of somebody yeah. else, but McNulty completely won this episode. No, easy work. His, McNulty won. His he, pettiness he, like, in this was so amazing. Yeah, his pettiness. And he deserved like, to have that moment, too. Yeah, he deserved the moment. Like, it, it was McNulty. He, the, everybody was bouncing everything off McNulty. McNulty found the dead girl. Bunk needed McNulty. McNulty and Landsman. McNulty has decided now that he's going to fuck over Rawls. The whole deal. It was a great episode. Uh, but a, a lot of people had a lot of different things going on. But in this particular episode, this is one of the more uh, McNulty-centric episodes that we've seen um, in a little while going back to season yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, and I picked him as... Uh, and, it, and and honestly, again, it's how uh, episode one of season one starts off. That's very McNulty-centric mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. But uh, really what won me over in terms of determining he was the winner of this episode was the fact that he got his revenge. And I thought he did deserve that. Look, McNulty is highly aggravating at times. He's pompous. Mm-hmm. He's arrogant. But he is a really good detective. And yeah. he brought in a career bust. And his reward for that should not be going to a place that he can't stand and being in the Marine. Yeah. And yeah, he yeah. he he violated chain of command. 
uh, he embarrassed some people by making them look stupid, which frankly, a lot of them deserve to look that way. Uh, I didn't uh-huh. always love how he, um, you know, how he treated Daniels because I thought Daniels was on the side and he jammed him up on a couple times where I thought he didn't deserve it. But Landsman, White Steven had this shit coming and so did Rawls. Had it coming. And so did Rawls. Yeah. And so for him to, uh, you know, reconfigure things and put that murder on his old unit, well done. Chef's kiss. Mr. Yep. McNulty. That'll do. Love it. Def- like definitely the winner of this one. This is one of the most, this is one of the more clear cut winners that we've had in a while. Yeah. For sure. A thousand percent McNulty. Definitely. Um, all right. Well, that's going to do it for us. We have now started season two. We're making our way as we continue to dive deeper into this universe of The Wire. Uh, thank you guys for going through season one. I hope it was as much fun for you as it was for us. And now we're on to season two. So make sure you continue to listen to us and keep watching The Wire. Peace. Peace.